Well, it is a pleasure to be back with you today. My name again is Tim Geiger. Um, you uh, might remember from when I was here back in January that I work for an organization called Children's Jubilee Fund, uh, which is located just outside the city. Uh, for most of its history, it was uh, located in the heart of the city. And what we do is we raise money to help uh, children who live in Philadelphia and who meet certain income requirements uh, go to Christian schools. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage you, as you think about me uh, and as you pray for my wife and me, uh, that you would also pray that the Lord would bless uh, uh, my ministry through Children's Jubilee Fund. But it is a pleasure to be back with you today. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 13. And that's on page 982 in your pew Bibles. I'll, I'll let you uh, turn there now. But uh, by way of introduction, uh, I don't know if you have ever received a performance appraisal uh, as an employee. So I, I've been around the block a few times, and 30 years ago, I was a manager uh, for everyone's favorite federal uh, agency, which is what? The IRS. the IRS, thank you. You either have very good memories from when I was here five months ago, or uh, you, you all just hate the IRS. Um, and there were different philosophies of assessing employee performance. Uh, I'm sure that there still are today, but they, they tried to teach us all these different philosophies, and I remember one of them standing out said that no matter how well an employee does in their, in their work, uh, when you assess their performance, you always have to give them some negative feedback. You have to look for something to challenge them so that they'll work even harder for the following year. It's really a kind of a crazy way of, of understanding human psychology and what motivates people. But... Uh, I can remember having some employees who, who literally walked on water. And to have to find something negative to say about them was not only difficult, but it's just stuck out on this glowing uh, appraisal like a sore thumb. And that's kind of uh, what brings us to Philippians chapter 4 today. Because uh, Philippians, unlike most of Paul's other epistles, is, is just a great uh, testimony to the, the love that he's experienced uh, from the, the Christians in Philippi. It is a, a, a letter of encouragement to the people in the church. It is uh, a, just a list of how Paul has seen the Spirit at work in, in many, many diverse ways uh, in the people of Philippi. And then you come to chapter 4. And there's this one thing, there's this one thing that stands out. And so I'm actually going to, to back up two verses. I'm going to start reading uh, at verse 2 in chapter 4, and I'll read through to the end of chapter 13. And this is God's word. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your inerrant, perfect word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, heal the, the words of my mouth. Make them acceptable, Lord, to present to your people today. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would write your word on our hearts, that we would see uh, what you want us to know about you and about ourselves as we examine this part of your word this morning. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you have this one problem in the Philippian church. And we don't know exactly what Euodia and Syntyche were disputing uh, about. We don't know what their disagreement was over. But we do know that uh, it was significant enough that it was known to the entire church, otherwise Paul wouldn't have put it uh, in this letter. And it's significant enough, we should remember that, uh, remember that Paul was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote Philippians, so somehow this was significant enough that uh, it was news that was carried 800 miles from Philippi to Rome and delivered to Paul in his prison cell. So whatever this, this dispute was, it it had some impact on the church. And as I said before, this this is kind of where we enter uh, the the passage that we're looking at today. Euodia and Syncrates dispute, in, in a sense, is the elephant in the room. It's the thing that is taking up all of the oxygen in the church. And it's something that Paul realizes that he needs to address. And in addressing it, Paul not only speaks directly to them and to their dispute 2,000 years ago, but he speaks to us today as well in whatever situations we're experiencing that put us in the same place as Euodia and Syntyche. So, again, perhaps you're in the midst of some really hard circumstances yourself. Maybe you're in in a dispute with someone that's unresolved. Maybe you are uh, experiencing health issues. 
Maybe you are experiencing employment difficulties. Uh, maybe there has been violence in your family uh, or in your neighborhood or among your friends. Maybe you are the victim of some form of injustice. Maybe you've been cheated or lied to or disappointed or dismayed. There could be any number of uh, situations that you find yourself in that put yourself kind of in the same place as where Euodia and Syntyche would have been. And maybe your issue is a, is a private issue that's only known to you in your heart. And so maybe it's not taking up all the oxygen in the church, but it's taking up all the oxygen in you. Maybe it's the only thing that you think about day in and day out. We all have situations like that from time to time. And the reason why it's important, the reason why it's essential to, to bring those things to the Lord in the manner that Paul suggests in Philippians 4 is because if we don't, we wind up only living in reaction to, to that issue. We, we, we try to work it out in our own strength. We, we try to escape the, the hardship that it creates. We, we try to convince the person with whom we have a conflict that we are right and they're wrong. But we have no peace. And we, we tell ourselves that we will have no peace until that issue is settled. And so what Paul tells us today is there is actually a way to have peace in the midst of really hard circumstances. Even as a church, uh, from the limited knowledge I have of what you've been through over the last year, I know that you've all suffered through a pandemic. Uh, I know that uh, you lost a beloved elder uh, just a few months ago. I know that uh, you are in the middle of a pastoral transition, having uh, lost Jerry a couple of months ago. And so there, there's a lot to grieve specifically in this church. And so what does God tell us about living in hard times, about experiencing hard circumstances, about being uncertain or pessimistic about the future? Well, as we look at the text today, I'd like to uh, kind of organize it under five terms. And here are the five terms. Rejoice, reasonableness, remember, request, and rest. And again, I apologize they're not on the insert. I uh, didn't know I would have uh, the ability to give you an outline, but those are the five uh, words. Rejoice, reasonableness, remember, request, and rest. So, point one. Rejoice. God invites us to rejoice in him no matter what we face. And just being honest, this is a difficult one to start off with. How do you rejoice no matter what the circumstances are that you face. And that there's no one way to answer that. There's no easy way to answer that. But let's start with what we do know. We, we do know that Paul calls us here in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Not just rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. Not just rejoice in the Lord when I'm having a good day. Not just rejoice in the Lord when I, you know, when I have 2,000 bucks in my checking account. Not just rejoice in the Lord when there are 70 people here on Sunday morning. 
Rejoice in the Lord always, even in those times of desolation. He says it twice. He repeats himself. He says, again, I will say rejoice. And whenever something is repeated in Scripture, it's repeated for emphasis. Like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he says, listen to this. I'm telling you something really important. And what Paul says here literally is, rejoice in the Lord always, and I mean it. I want you to always rejoice in the Lord. But Paul doesn't ask us to ignore the hard circumstances we find ourselves in. As a matter of fact, Paul highlights in in the passage we read today some of his own difficult circumstances in verses 11 through 13. He says that he was brought low, that, that in some way that he was humbled uh, and uh, you know just looking at his uh, imprisonment which he was experiencing at the time when uh, he wrote this letter uh, to, to be incarcerated uh, is one way to be brought low but that's not the only time that Paul was was humbled during his ministry he talks about facing hunger and remember that uh, in Paul's life 2,000 years ago, you couldn't just go to 7-Eleven or, or go to Acme if you wanted to get something to eat. He was under house arrest. Maybe there were times when he had no money uh, to, to send other people out to get him something to eat. He talks about being in need. So to be humbled, to be hungry, to be in, in need in other ways, uh, th- those are difficult circumstances. There are circumstances that perhaps uh, we've experienced uh, in this congregation, but probably not all at the same time. And yet, even in these circumstances, Paul tells us what in verse 11? That he has learned to be content. Paul, what are you talking about? How can you be content when you are humbled, when you're hungry, when you're in need? And he tells us that contentment in these circumstances is a learned and practiced response. He doesn't say, God gave me the grace to be content, and now all of a sudden, I'm content. He says, I've learned. This has taken place over the course of time. It comes at the cost of something. I have to give something up in order to experience this contentment. It doesn't come automatically, and it doesn't come easily. It's a response that's learned only as we choose to rejoice not in our circumstances and our feelings, but in the faithfulness and the never-changing character of our good and gracious God. And so that's, that's the first word, rejoice. The second word, reasonableness. God tells us to show it to everyone. And I I don't even know that reasonableness is a valid word. Uh, If you Google it, it it does come up uh, as one of the the returns. But, uh, you know, in, in my experience, I have rarely, if ever, encountered that particular word in the English language. So it's a very clunky word at best. 
And yet, the, the word reasonableness that is in our English Bibles in verse 5 is a thing. It is a word. And it uh, is a translation of the Greek word uh, epiakes. And what epiakes is, is difficult to translate. And, and this happens so often with, with the Greek language because there, there just isn't a direct English equivalent. It, it means roughly to demonstrate forbearance or patience in difficult circumstances. Or to put it another way, it means to willingly be humbled or to deprive yourself in order to benefit someone else. And I think that that's the, the, the way that, that Paul is using it here. He uses uh, the same word, uh, a variation of it anyway, to describe the meekness and the gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1. And so we, we do know um, that it has something to do with the, the character and the nature of Jesus. We know that Jesus is gentle because he lays aside uh, his anger, which he should rightly have against sinful people. And he chooses to show us mercy and grace because he's completely atoned for our sin on the cross. Jesus is gentle toward those who believe because he endured suffering on our behalf. And that's the same sense that Epiakes has in this passage. Reasonableness means to endure suffering yourself in order to benefit someone else. And Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 5, this is the way that we should act. We, we should let our reasonableness, our epiakes, be known to everyone. He asks us to make a public and demonstrable show of our willingness to be humble in refusing to demand our comfort, in choosing to serve God and others before serving ourselves. And that's what I believe Paul asks Euodia and Syntyche uh, to do in order to reconcile their relationship. Again, we don't know what they were arguing about, but he encourages each of them to be humble toward the other and to surrender their demand that the other woman change her mind. He tells them both to in verse 2, to agree in the Lord and to stop insisting that they individually be found right. Paul says that what matters most in the church in Philippi, and for that matter, the, the church in Philadelphia, is unity. Unity and not getting what we want. And as believers in Jesus, we follow his example uh, of serving others, and we, we follow Paul's uh, exhortation here. We, we refuse the inclination to greedily and selfishly gratify our own desires, and we first trust the Lord uh, and serve others. That's what being reasonable in our desires means, that we trust that in Christ and in Christ alone, we have the complete fulfillment of all of our desires and any need that we could ever have. Paul says something similar uh, in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. And Jesus tells us the same thing in Matthew 6, 8, where he says, when, when talking about prayer, he says, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. And so if, if all of these things are true, 
if, if we know that God in heaven is a good and loving and faithful God who understands the circumstances that we're in, who understands how we feel inside, who understands how that circumstance is, is tearing us up and occupying all of the, the, the space in our lives, don't we think that he will give us what we need? Do we think that we still have to act in our own strength, exert our own will enough to get what we want? Paul says no. Paul says lay those things down. Let God be God and you be the servant. The third word, remember. Remember, the Lord is at hand. So there, there are two exhortations uh, in verses 5 and 6. One is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, and do not be anxious about anything. And, and the hinge between those two exhortations is the comforting statement that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. But what does that mean? It means that God is present with, with his people. He's present with you in the midst of your suffering. That nearness means that those who follow Jesus are never truly alone. When you suffer, when you experience fear, when you experience anxiety, when you experience disappointment, when you experience uh, righteous anger, when you experience uh, loneliness, you are never alone. God is with you. The Lord is near. The Lord uh, is near us to give us grace to, to bear up under the circumstances and to provide for us. And, and this kind of nearness is a fulfillment of Jesus' request in his prayer in John 17, 23, the, the, what, what is often called in our English Bibles the high priestly prayer which is the prayer Jesus prayed right before he was betrayed in the garden, where he says, Father, let me be in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So what matters most to Jesus, minutes before he is betrayed in the garden and goes to the cross, is that we would know that he is with us, and that we would be one. That's what's most important to Jesus. So how is this nearness of God helpful to us in hard times? Well, we know that God is with us through his spirit in times of trial, in times of loneliness, darkness, hopelessness. Tonight at the evening service, we're going to be looking at Psalm 23, and, and David tells us, rather, in Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David encourages us uh, here to consider that the mere presence of God with his people is enough to turn back the fear and even the power of death itself. God's rod and God's staff, the tools of the shepherd and the psalm, are met, meant not only to keep us, the sheep, near God where we're safe, but to drive back the power of anything that could harm us. Now, that's fine for sheep, but sheep don't experience a lot of the, the issues that you and I face every day. How, how does 
God's rod and God's staff and God's presence. Help us when we experience the kinds of really difficult situations that we experience every day. And, and the reality is that even though those things might hurt, even though those things might inflict pain, even though those things might wound in horrible ways, they're not ultimate. God is in control. God, uh, Paul tells us um, later on, is working all things together for, those, for the good, rather, of those who are his in Christ Jesus. He says that in Romans chapter 8. It doesn't mean that every single situation turns out a-okay. What it means is that God is, is weaving together the events and the experiences of our lives in order to sanctify us, in order to make us increasingly men and women who trust in God's love and his faithfulness. Even when we don't see the visible evidence of good in front of us, we trust that God is good and that he keeps his promises to care for us. And again, this doesn't mean that as a follower of Jesus you won't suffer, but what it does mean is that God is actively working all those things together for your ultimate good, that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus himself. And what it means as well is that Jesus, the fully divine and fully human son of God, tasted death in order to destroy everything that could ultimately destroy us. And he is constantly present with his people through his spirit, reminding us that he has overcome what we experience and what we fear. So the fourth uh, word is request. Request. God invites us to talk with him about the things that worry us. Paul invites us in verse 6 to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The invitation is to have an honest conversation with our Father through prayer. Friends, prayer is a, is a conversation. Uh, we, we are meant to speak with God as one would speak with a friend. Because God is a friend. We hear from God as his spirit writes his word on our hearts. And through, uh, through that, he brings specific comfort and peace and understanding and wisdom to our minds. It's through that that we realize we are truly not alone. God has not abandoned us. In response to Paul's invitation in verse 6, we bring before God those things that make us anxious. We bring our fears our desires, our circumstances, our lack of control, our disappointment, all of it to God and ask him to put our hearts and minds in the right place to experience real and lasting peace and contentment. It's okay to say hard things to God. He already knows what makes you anxious. Remember what Jesus said, your father already knows what you need even before you can ask. And so he asks us to be as honest and as real with him as we would be with any friend as we pour out our hearts before him. When you pray, you don't need the right words. You don't need to worry about offending God. He encourages you to share your heart with him and to hear his response to you. You're not going to make God angry by what you say in prayer. 
but he can use those angry words, that lack of faith that you express, to, to begin the process of creating that peace in your hearts. And that brings us to the final word, rest. Rest. God invites us to rest in this peace that he provides. Verses 7 through 9 talk about a peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Such a peace doesn't make much sense to someone convinced that their happiness is rooted in, in better circumstances. But to the believer in Jesus, that peace feels like new life itself. It feels like a, a huge burden has been lifted. And that's because new life is exactly what this peace is. It's the new creation breaking in and reordering the messed up, disordered state of our sinful hearts and minds. In a sense, if you think about us uh, as, as computers, um, it's like God coming in and fixing the bugs in our hearts' uh, badly infected operating system. He, he does this as we begin to desire, to think, to act, and to look like who we really are, children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, saints in a world under the dominion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But take note that Paul says that this peace of God surpasses all understanding. He says it's not going to make sense. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't depend on our circumstances being changed. It doesn't depend on anyone being healed or systemic injustices being undone. Paul himself says in verses 11 through 13 that this peace in his heart and mind gave him the power to choose to be content no matter his circumstances. He was still humbled. He was still hungry. He was still in need, but he was content because this peace of God that, that reminded him of God's nearness to him reigned in his heart. Even in the midst of suffering, Paul can acknowledge that the suffering hurts, but that he has peace in his heart and mind because he knows that God is ultimately in control and won't allow him to suffer needlessly. And even going back to uh, how we began the sermon today with the story of Euodia and Syntyche, remember that even though... uh, the, the letter to the Philippians was penned by Paul. This is still the Holy Spirit inspiring everything that he writes. This isn't just Paul's advice to these two women. This is what God is saying to these two women. And, and does he say, you know, just get over it to them? Does he say, get a mediator and figure out how to find a mutually acceptable solution? No. He says to them, agree in the Lord. Put put aside your individual arguments. Humble yourselves before the Lord and before each other. Choose to live in peace. Because that is your birthright as daughters of God. As we transition to communion, The peace of God is something that only Christians can experience. And even then, just like 
Euodia and Syntyche and Paul, we have to choose in faith and humility to experience it. Here's what I mean. If you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, then your bondage to sin has died. Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 3. If you have a, a pew Bible, turn there with me now. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you, have been, if you have then, I'm sorry, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then skip down to verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, there's that peace again, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The Lord calls us to live in, in peace and humility with one another, forgiving one another freely, as the simple living out, and I shouldn't even say simple, it's not simple, but as the living out of this new life, which is yours in Christ, if you are a follower of his. We can only experience that peace. We can only put on those things that Paul talked about in Colossians 3 if we know that Jesus is truly with us. We celebrate those gifts of God's grace as we approach the Lord's table this morning. But Paul does warn us that it's wrong for us to receive the Lord's uh, forgiveness, but to withhold our forgiveness from someone else who has harmed us. Think about that passage in Colossians 3 carefully. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I invite you to examine your heart silently now. Maybe there's someone against whom you have a dispute, and you have to forgive them. Maybe there's someone who has insulted you, or overlooked you, or harmed you in some other way. Don't allow that situation to linger in a state of unforgiveness. But silently uh, allow the Spirit to examine our hearts now. And I would encourage you, if there is anyone who owes you a debt of any kind, that you would choose to forgive them in your heart now, because that is God's gift to you.
pray with me. Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us this inestimable gift, uh, the gift of being forgiven for our sins through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. But also, Lord, what comes with that, and that is the fact that we have all been made members of your family. We have been made your sons and daughters, through the work of our elder brother Jesus. 
And so, Lord, uh, write your word on our hearts. Uh, Cause the peace that we talked about in the sermon uh, to reign in our hearts. And may your presence with us uh, be a joy to us and something that never departs from us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and we'll join in our closing hymn. Now thank we all our God, hymn number 41.